0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are moving on to some new material today, Luke chapter 17. We've been in John 11 for some time now, dealing with uh, Lazarus and his resurrection. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we focused on episode 27, which was the reaction <coughs> to the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, for many, it was a rejoicing and a celebration and giving glory to God. Uh, for the Pharisees, however, it was about the worst thing imaginable. They uh, were livid. They, it was unacceptable, intolerable that Jesus was accomplishing the miracles that he was accomplishing because too many were believing in him. Too many were observing the miracles, and they felt that they had to stop it. And if they didn't stop it, then uh, the whole world was going to follow after him. So, um, in any event, isn't that interesting how the two directly opposite reactions can come, and it's the same thing today—the uh, two opposite reactions to the name of Jesus Christ today. Those of us here, we love Christ; He saved us. We we worship Him and, and study His Word daily, and that's just the opposite of how typically the world views Jesus Christ in terms of uh, well, you know, His name is a swear word in, in most uh, unbelieving applications. Well, something similar to that is going to come up in today's class. Uh, I'm actually going to cover two episodes, episode 28 and 29, all in the same uh, lesson, although I have given them separate outlines. Uh, We'll cover them both here today as we look at verse 11 and then verses 12 through 19 back to back. So uh, we've been in the midst of uh, Luke 17, verse 10 and a half. Okay, Luke 17, 10 and a half. Uh, is John chapter 11, and now we're ready for um, Luke 17:11 and following. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, then verse 19, Stand up and go. Your faith has saved you or made you well, I prefer the saved you language of salvation there, and that's what we will develop here in our study. All right, this is where we are, Luke 17 today. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer, giving us the opportunity to dress appropriately in our priestly garments, cleansed and ready for worship in God's presence. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you once again today, uh, thankful, undeserving, uh, recognizing that it is only by your grace, Father, that we woke up one more time. Only by your grace, you've supplied one more Bible class opportunity, uh, a building to meet in, and uh, a location, Father, for our prayer times and our Bible studies. We thank you for the uh, graciousness of Live Oak Bible Church, allowing us to continue in their in their facility, and we are excited about the construction ongoing and looking forward to the move in your perfect timing. Father, uh, as always, we're committing our time before you for your glory, for your good pleasure, for your faithfulness. Uh, You are faithful to guide us in the truth. You're faithful in your spirit to teach us all things. And you are faithful in your promise that your word will not return void, but will accomplish all that you sent it for. So, Father, we claim that promise and we ask for your blessing on our study today. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke seventeen eleven. The word begins is uh, awkward, particularly when you use it over and over and over again. Uh, it's kind of like a speaker who says, okay, now last thing. And then he does that four or five more times before he says, okay, now really last thing before I let you go. And then he does two more. Uh, The idea begins, this is actually a little bit interesting because this is the third mention of the journey to Jerusalem in what's sometimes referred to as Luke's travel log. uh, For those who do synoptic studies and comparisons between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Luke is noteworthy for the sheer volume, the number of times that he says Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus began heading towards Jerusalem again and again and again and again. And so this is the third time we've come to it. Uh, we had it in Luke 9, Luke 13. Uh, we have it again now. It's going to come back in chapter 18 and again in chapter 19. And in a lot of ways, it is a uh, a very vivid and descriptive Uh, observation. It's it's part of Luke's writing style, Um, but I do believe it communicates very effectively that once the Galilean ministry was shut down, uh, he never um, reestablished a new headquarters. He never uh set up or 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 he didn't relocate his family for example when he when he set up capernaum as the center of the galilean ministry he actually located his mother and his brothers and his sisters they actually had a headquarters set up and we studied that at the time well that doesn't happen again when the galilean ministry is shut down yes he goes to perea and yes he goes to uh judea some and then in this episode he's actually kind of uh drifting in a border region which we're going to study um but he never reestablishes a new headquarters. And there's a reason for that. Because once he departs Galilee, he is literally on the way to Jerusalem. And he spends his final year, not quite a year, he spends the final nine months or thereabouts on the way to Jerusalem. Now, that might be awkward for us. We, To us, it's not really beyond, I mean, its we don't even think in those terms. The idea that I'm on the way somewhere for nine months is is... Nonsensical because modern transportation and communication and way of life, we would never consider that we're on the way somewhere for nine months. You know, you can get around the globe in a matter of of hours, and uh, even the longest flight I've ever been on didn't exceed 24 hours in terms of, well, with connections it did. But, you know, roughly you can be anywhere around the globe 12 time zones away within 24 hours. See? Real quickly, let's not, uh, I, I don't anticipate this is going to be a lengthy study, but we can uh, grab these references here, starting in Luke 9. And just understand that it's his mindset that I think gets communicated here. Right from the very first reference in Luke nine fifty one, when the days were approaching for his ascension. Well, now, wait a minute. Doesn't resurrection come before ascension? And doesn't burial come before resurrection? And doesn't death come before burial? Okay, yes, all of those things are in view, but what was Jesus focused on? His ascension, his return to the Father's glory. The, the great high priestly prayer in John 17, glorify your name, restore to me the glory that I had with you, Father, before the world was. And we understand that while he was on the cross, he endured the shame, despised the shame. Why? Because of the joy set before him. So I think this, mindset being described here the days were approaching for his ascension he was determined to go to jerusalem i think it the very first reference of this list defines what all the rest of these actually signify what he was focused on why he hasn't bothered to establish a new uh, headquarters or a new place of residence as it were and so he sent messengers on ahead of him and they went and entered a village of the samaritans to make arrangements this was the episode here and uh, the disciples got offended because the Samaritans were um, uh, less than hospitable, you might say. And uh, so they wanted to call fire down and, uh, and, and just kill all those nasty Samaritans. All right. Makes sense. If you can do miracles, then why not? Just burn to a crisp those that you're not uh, happy with. Well, <laughs> sarcasm. Okay? I understand that. Um, keep that in mind, though, because today's story centers on a Samaritan. There were ten lepers. We take it by the inference that nine of them were Jewish. And only the tenth is called the foreigner. Only the tenth is, is identified as a Samaritan or by race. The others are not identified at all, which is why we, by default, understand them to be, to be Jewish. And uh, so we're going to highlight that. All right. Over to chapter 13 then. And look at these things that happen in between. Does that mean these statements are false? Is he somehow not really going to Jerusalem because he has a bunch of stops along the way? Of course, he's on his way. And you understand that. So uh, same thing in Luke, Luke thirteen twenty two. He was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And so as he's doing a, an itinerant journey through these various towns, it's what's different from what he did in Galilee, in Galilee he would do circuit preaching, in the Galilean ministry, he would go from place to place. And, and, but it was always with a recognition that he could be coming back again, that it was a circuit, and that he might make it to Nain, he might make it to Nazareth, he might make it to uh, Cain, uh, to, uh, to different regions there, different territories within uh, within Galilee. But what do we find out? We find out that he actually hit them more than one time. We know he went to Nazareth two different times. We know he went to Cana a couple of times. We know he went to, well, Nain we only know about once. Uh, but how many times was he always in and out of Capernaum? How many times did he cross over to Bethsaida, for example? That was an itinerant ministry where there, was, there were return visits that were anticipated. Here there are no return visits anticipated. He is hitting these villages, as it were, on his way to Jerusalem, and he's not going to see them again um, before the cross. And I think that's a significant difference. Uh, and, of course, here we are again in Luke 17. And, and I think we're going to, as we bring in the correlating uh, reference from John 11, as far as the village and the boundaries and where he is, The first of all, the construction itself is very awkward. There's an idiom at, at play here that says he was passing between. He was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and that, that's a problem. It's it's just awkward the way it's phrased, and it's uh, it's unclear geographically why is it, Why is it Samaria first, Galilee mentioned second? How is he passing between them, particularly when he's been in Perea for the last couple of months? So the geography is a puzzle, and we're going to explore that a little bit here today as well. But it comes back again in chapter 18 and in chapter 19. He's still on his way to Jerusalem. Chapter 18 and verse 31, uh, he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. See, did you catch that? (laughs) Have you picked up on that yet? We're on our way to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets uh, about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be handed over. He will be handed over. Now, we're not going to develop that here in this study, but come back tonight. This is a feature of our message tonight in Second Corinthians. As far as Jesus Christ handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and as far as you and I, we are constantly being betrayed over to death in Second Corinthians chapter 4. We need to get a handle on who's betraying us? Who's handing us over? Then finally, in Luke 19, verses 11 and 28, uh, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. I mean, just understand how long has he been saying, we're going to Jerusalem, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. They didn't like listening to that part. And so, the closer they got, the closer they got, it's like this massive disconnect between the Lord and his disciples. They they were thinking less and less of his dying, and they were hoping more and more, is the kingdom now coming upon us? <laughs> See, and I find it interesting. You know, you even read, it's not until John is in the tomb looking down at the empty uh, tomb and at the, the cloth laying there that finally things start to lock in in his thinking. Same chapter, then, the last reference we look at here is verse 28. After he had said these things, this is Luke 19:28, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And uh, this very paragraph is where he gives them the instructions and he gets on the colt and the children start singing Hosanna as he uh, finally enters into the city that he's been approaching for ten chapters now. OK, that's why it's called Luke's travel log. It's like a block of the gospel of Luke, 10 or 11 chapters long, that uh, has Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to Jerusalem. See, anyway, it's a it's a feature of Luke that gets highlighted more so than um, in Matthew and in uh, Mark. Now, secondly, this idiom, this this phrase through the middle of Samaria and Galilee, through the middle, dia meson, And you got dia, plus you got an accusative of messos, and uh, you know when you're expecting a a genitive and you see an accusative, and then you find um, the order being Samaria and Galilee instead of Galilee and Samaria. You would think uh, normally that Galilee's to the north and Samaria, and then Jerusalem. If you're progressing towards Jerusalem, the order seems backwards. Along the boundary is how I like to translate it. I think uh, rather than along or in the middle of or between, depending on what English text you're reading, you might actually, some of them are starting to use the word between here. And uh, so if he's between Jerusalem or a Samaria and Galilee, that would actually make more sense. I'll put a map up here in a moment. And I think what we're dealing with is a uh, border region. We're dealing with kind of a no man's land in between two very hostile population centers. And, um, when I put it up on the map, you'll be able to see it visually or a little bit graphically. But some of the verses we read just a moment ago illustrated how they didn't get along. The Jews and the, and the Samaritans absolutely hated each other and had very little to do with each other uh, unless, you know, they couldn't help it. Um, if they had their preferences, they would never meet one another ever again. So I like uh, along the boundary of uh, Samaria and Galilee. Now, let me just remind you here, stay, I mean, if you want to turn, you can to John 11, but I'll be right back here in Luke 17. Uh, when the uh, episode ended two weeks ago, we uh, saw that they were trying to kill him and he was starting to get more uh, clever, careful, tactical about how he avoided their clutches He's not afraid of dying, but he wants to make sure that he lives long enough to get to the proper appointed time of his of his uh, Passover death. And so, in John 11, we read that um, he no longer walked openly. Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. So that no uh, no more uh, sending the disciples forth and announcing his arrival, no more heralding, uh, no more putting up uh, flyers on on town walls saying, you know. Jesus of Nazareth is preaching next, next Friday. None of that. No future announcements, no public knowledge. He was very cautious in where he went. He went away from there to, a country, to the country, near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim. And that's a big puzzle because uh, we know Ephraim is a tribe. Ephraim is a land allotment or a territory. The idea of a city called Ephraim, in particular if this is a Greek spelling of a Hebrew name, uh, opens up to a number of possibilities, including Ephron, including Orpha. And uh, the fact that there's a couple of different Orphas um, just add to the uh, to the puzzlement. And there he stayed with the disciples. So uh, since we know from John 12 and then Luke and the synoptics that his next uh, approach to Jerusalem is going to come, From the east, it's usually thought of that this mysterious out in the countryside, Ephraim, wherever, is probably to the east, say. And I think that's a mistake, and I'll show you why here. uh, Because, in particular, the boundary between Samaria and Galilee is not east, it's north. And so I think if we're going to be consistent, if we're going to reconcile John 11 with Luke 17, we need to quit looking for this Ephraim city, uh, east or northeast of Jerusalem and really look more north, and I think actually northwest. In other words, he went to the exact opposite of where they thought he might be, which is what you want to do if there's people looking for you and, and want you dead. All right. Be where they don't expect you. And don't be where they do expect you. Make sense? All right. Well, the Jezreel Valley provided a borderland, a borderland crossroads, and in some respects, if you're trying to hide, one of the best places to hide is, um, not really in plain sight, but in a in a crowd, in a mixed crowd, in a location where everybody is passing through anyway. And so if, if everyone's passing through anyway, then one more person passing through doesn't attract attention, or a dozen people passing through doesn't attract attention. All right. Now, I don't know how bright that's going to be in the... Uh, in the deal there. But if you have your own maps in the back of your Bibles or your own atlas at home or what have you, um, this might not be. Can you see at least see the basic outline of the, of the continent there? <laughs> the uh, Mediterranean Sea on the west and then the land. And, of course, you've got the uh, Sea of Galilee up top and the, and the very edge of the Dead Sea down low. Um, I should put on my clicker. How about that? I'm not good at these. All right, let's try this. A felt tip pen. All right. So along the Jordan River here. Hey. Not bad, right? I just need more practice. Um, our recent classes have come in what we call the last Judean and Prian ministry of Jesus. And by and large, he's been over here in the Prian region. This says Priea right there if we can't read it. And uh, after having ministered up here in the Galilean region, this is where the really three of the three and a half years were spent up in here, in Galilee. Um, he, sh- he closed that down. That shut down. And from the moment that shut down, according to Luke's travel log, he was on his way to Jerusalem. See, half a year later, nine months later. Now, Judea, of course, is down here. This is Judea. If I was really clever, I'd change colors here, but... I'm not that clever. This is Judea, and these were the main Jewish population centers: Judea to the south, Galilee to the north. And what bugged them to death, of course, were these Samaritans in the middle, right? Samaritans that they would love to get rid of, particularly because Samaria itself was originally their city. It was the it was the capital of the Northern Kingdom of Israel. It was Jewish historically. Uh, it only became Samaritan because of the uh, the captivity because the Assyrians brought them there after they took the Jews out and they were still there through the reign of the Babylonians the Persians the Greeks into the Romans there's still Samaritans there okay there's still Samaritans in Israel to this day in modern times and uh, they set up a uh, a rival system to Jerusalem's worship and they had a temple on Mount Gerizim and they had a pentateuch that belonged to them only they didn't accept the Psalms or the other writings but the Pentateuch they accepted called the Samaritan Pentateuch and um, and so forth well such was the animosity between Jews and Samaritans that they hated to travel through that region and if they were going to go to between Galilee and Judea they would actually cross the river Jordan go north or south depending and then cross west again back to get into into the other territory because at least in the Prian region you had some Semitic Gentiles, and over here in Decapolis, he had mainly uh, a Greek territory there, and you're better off going through those regions than passing through the uh, Samaritans. Well, this little region here, oh, okay, this little region here, the Jezreel Valley, and really, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a deep valley. It's a, it's a wide plain. This is where Megiddo is located, the plain of Megiddo, where the Battle of Armageddon is prophesied. And it was a broad plain that, in, that bisects, really. I mean, it just comes in at, a, at an angle to reach the Jordan Valley. And it marks the boundary between Samaria to the south and Galilee to the north. And so I think this idiom, this expression here that he was passing between uh, Samaria and Galilee, um, Points to this very valley, the Jezreel Valley, it points to a location of conflict, points to a location of, of really a, a mixed bag. I call it a borderland crossroads and it truly was a, a, a border you definitely want to travel in a valley instead of through the hills and uh, road travel was faster and, and so forth, but not just between Samaritans and Jews but also between Romans, Greeks, and Phoenicians as well. It was really a five-way intersection, as it were. I mentioned Decapolis over here. That was uh, ten city-states that were Greek uh, in their uh, Seleucid, for the most part, sometimes Ptolemaic, but mainly Seleucid Greek cities there, of which nine were on that side of the river and one was smack dab right there. Um, And then the Romans out on the coast with Caesarea and and Maritime Caesarea and some other Roman establishments were over here on the coast. And, of course, the Phoenicians were up here with their city of Tyre. And so this this valley here really formed a boundary. And um, people constantly coming and going, crossing here, crossing there. And uh, formed, I think, a pretty interesting hiding place if, in fact, Uh, That is what was going on. Now, the Ephraim that was mentioned in uh, John 11, uh, if you take it back to a Hebrew uh, term, the Hebrew name for some of these towns, I think it's best related to either Ephron or Orpha. Uh, There were two Orphas, and uh, one of them was like right here, hardly out of the way at all, I think, uh, close enough to the Pharisees and close enough to the Sanhedrin to still be in trouble. Uh, but a lot of scholars like it because it was close to Bethany. When he's done hiding, he goes to Mary and, and Martha's and Lazarus' house at Bethany there in John chapter 12. On the other hand, I prefer to put it up here. There was another Orpha up here <coughs> on the boundary between uh, Samaria and Galilee. And uh, this, by the way, is the village where uh, many folks think that the uh, the uh, the ten lepers were from. So, um Either you accept the orpha of Benjamin, as listed in the First Samuel thirteen seventeen, or the orpha of Manasseh, uh, as stipulated in Judges six eleven, and I think it's this one up here that's probably the better candidate for our um, for our uh, study today. Let me erase all ink on slide. There we go. Let me go back to a pointer. All right. I won't do that again. That's that's hard work. All right. There may be too much information or you may not care, but there's a lot of study that goes into figuring out where exactly this Orpha is, where exactly this Ephraim is so puzzling in, in John 11 as a city rather than a tribe or a, a territory, and uh, different things there. I think... uh, It is noteworthy, though, that this is a Samaritan mixed in with nine Jews together with their common leprosy outside a village. And by the way, a village uh, which has no name, according to verse 12. As he entered a village. So, I mean, if it was absolutely critical that we pinpointed the location, then uh, the Holy Spirit really should have inspired the name of this place (laughs) so that we wouldn't know uh, where this happened to be. Another feature of Luke, by the way, it 's not uncommon for Luke to uh, to leave villages unnamed, so as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. It was fairly common lepers would not be permitted in the village; they would be outcast as soon as their leprosy was uh, observed, and uh, oftentimes colonies or shanty towns of of uh, of uh, leper settlements would be near enough to a town where they could beg and where they could um, Uh, try to obtain some benevolence or some food from travelers coming in and out. And that's the case here. They would be near the gate. They couldn't block the gate or the city guards would have at them. But uh, it's a fairly common practice and it's one that we see here. Notice now, they met him. They meet him in verse 12, but he doesn't see them until verse 14. Uh, But they met him. In other words, it comes from their initiative. As he was traveling, at whatever distance it was, they saw him and they knew immediately who he was. And so they, um, they, they raised their voices. Of course, there were Mosaic Law stipulations against this. If you were a leper, you could not get close enough to somebody um, because of the fears of how contagious it was and so forth. Um, so you had to shout. You couldn't get close enough to not shout. And, uh, and be heard. So Jesus, Master, fascinating term. I'll give you the vocabulary on that in a moment. It's not our normal term for Lord. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so when he saw them, and it is, it is explicitly spelled out here that he took no notice of them. He didn't even know they were there until they shouted to him. And that got his attention. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. So the order on this is kind of interesting. First of all, the unnamed village has a group of lepers near its gate. This unnamed village has a group of lepers. And I don't know if there's a collective noun for lepers or not. I didn't. I meant to look it up. That's my hobby. One of my hobbies. I'm a collective noun enthusiast. All right, because you want to. It's it's horrifying when you misapply when you use the wrong term you talk about a a herd of sheep and they laugh at you and say it's a flock of sheep see well everybody knows that Um, but then other animals and other terms that have very precise uh, expressions like a murder of crows for example a parliament of owls I mean there's a number of these been a hobby of mine for years now I don't know if lepers has such a thing in Maybe it does, and I, I'm negligent in that. But I'm just calling them a group here, and I will revise my notes if I find out otherwise. Um, but there's a group of them. There's ten of them, okay? Ten lepers. Now, in um, Leviticus, we have expectations here. This is part of the Levitical Code that uh, kept the leprosy from uh, spreading. Of course, modern medicine um, takes issue with some of the concepts they feel that you know if this is like a non-Hodgkin's thing or they they got different modern ideas of what biblical leprosy even was the truth is they don't actually know but whatever modern medicine says modern medicine may say it's not contagious uh, but boy in the ancient world they sure thought it was not just Israel either Egyptians Babylonians Assyrians uh, you know didn't matter lepers Goodbye, uh, you're not coming into our village. And so in Leviticus 13, we'll kind of approach this again a couple of times in this study because beyond verses 45 and 46, we actually have material throughout both chapter 13 and chapter 14. I think it's applicable. Um but it says in verse forty five, as for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry unclean, unclean. That was his announcement. Uh, that kept people from coming too close. If if someone got closer than shouting distance he had to cry unclean, unclean, and everybody knew what that meant and they would back off immediately. And so, uh, verse 46: He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And of course, live alone. Um, they, you know, understood and defined alone meaning uh, amongst other lepers was okay, <laughs> but not among non-lepers, not among you know healthy people. And that's why you would end up with these little colonies, these shanty towns, and little. Uh, uh, Places where, where these uh, folks would end up. There's a, a pretty good story about this that actually takes place in 2 Kings chapter 7, you might be familiar with. 2 Kings chapter 7, during the uh, ministry of Elisha and um, the city that's under siege and surrounded by uh, invaders. And uh, interestingly enough, Samaria is the locality here. Um, and we read in verse 3, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, and I think that assumes the city people would let them in. I don't think that's a given. Uh, then the famine is in the city. And we will die there. And if we sit here, we also will die. You know, if you're right there against the gate and then the army Storm's the place. You know, you, you know, don't want to be there. So, uh, therefore, come, let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. And if they kill us, well, what have we lost? All, all, all that can happen is we're going to die, but that's no great loss. We're going to die anyway. So, we've got nothing to lose. So, they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. And when they came to the outskirts of the camp, uh, behold, no one was there. Imagine that. You come out and it's totally vacated. Their tents are there. Their equipment's there. the food is there. Uh, but they're gone. Well, surprise, surprise. And uh, the Lord had caused the army, of the Arameans, to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. So therefore they arose and fled in the twilight, left their tents, their horses, their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and they fled for their life. And they fled for their life. See, I have my own story along this line because um in desert storm when the, when the ground war launched and uh, first cav i never confessed this to general joe uh but first cav uh launched across the border into kuwait and into iraq and they went so fast they uh they did just like here they left their tents they left their cots they left their food they left their everything they left their camp vacant while they launched across in their tanks and their armored vehicles and and all the rest of that and they had designed it to where they had were supposed to have supposed to a follow-up team come behind and pack up everything and secure everything and and relocate and all that well their follow-up guys were a bit slow and um the bedouins were getting to everything the arabs were, were getting in there and and so you know we we were you know we spotted what was happening as mps and we couldn't stop it you know but in any event as much was plundered by the Arabs, uh, some items were salvaged, not plundered, but uh, we, we were able to improve our tent situation and our cot situation pretty pretty well with uh, some things. And I really hope I get a chance to tell General Joe that story one day, because it's been on my heart for 20 years now. I've been racked with guilt over the tents and cots. But nothing with a serial number. Nothing with a serial number. Tents and cots are fine. Camouflage netting is great. But uh, we were not going to uh, be caught with anything with a serial number that didn't belong to our unit. All right. Anyway, this is the story from 2 Kings chapter 7. And the, <coughs> the lepers had to figure out. They said, you know what? This isn't right. You know, they went in. They plundered the camp. They ate. They drank. They were wearing clothes and all that. I mean, they're just living like kings. They had the whole camp to themselves. And then finally they said, you know what, we probably ought to go tell the people inside that besieged city. They're starving to death in the famine. They think they're surrounded by the armies. And uh, so they go to the gatekeepers. And as you look through more of this, you'll notice they they're calling out at a distance, and the gatekeepers are, aren't opening the gate. And they, they certainly don't want the lepers coming inside. And... Uh, until they actually believe them, and and then they get to go plunder the camp. So, anyway, that's the story there. And I think it's a good backdrop for what we have here in Luke 11. Again, it's a city, it's a village, and the lepers can't go inside, but they're uh, out there on the outskirts, and uh, they're able to observe the people as they come and go. And maybe even from a place of concealment, since Jesus didn't spot them, but they spotted him. And then uh, when they stood up and called out to him, then he becomes aware of them. Well... This is uh, what we have here. Now, they address him by name. They do address him by name. They call him Jesus. And that's significant. Uh, In a lot of cases, there are folks, they don't recognize him. They just call him Kurios. They call him Lord. And, uh, you know, Sir, Sir is kind of a generic Sir when you don't know somebody's name. So you say, you know, how do you do, Sir? You know, if you don't know the guy's name, Sir is a pretty safe thing to call him or ma'am. And that happens often in the Gospels, but here... They know his given name, his birth name, his given name of Jesus. And I think that's an interesting note. I also think it's uh, another piece of evidence to put this village north, closer to Nazareth, than down there in that Benjamin territory that a lot of the commentaries try to put it in. So, uh, Jesus... If, in fact, uh, this is as close to Nazareth as I think it is, then some of these, may have, he may have had business dealings with this village in the past in his carpentry work. And then they call him master. Now, it's not curios; it's epistates. E-P-I-S-T-A-T-E-S, epistates. And uh, an epistates is, uh, is uh, a foreman. And epistates is uh, the, 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 the big cheese, the boss, the man in charge. And it's uh, similar to episkopos, an overseer, uh, only where, where overseer emphasizes the supervision, uh, States emphasizes the on-hands control, the on-hands authority. See, an, uh, an overseer may supervise and may have the ultimate authority, but he may not necessarily be hands-on because he delegates that, and there's there's layers in between. But an epistates is hands-on. It is an on-hands authority, someone who stands over. It only has seven New Testament uses, and they're all used by Luke. So it's, a, it's really it's a testimony to his vocabulary, his writing style, and uh, part of Luke's uh, background that he makes use of a term like epistates as often as he does. Mostly, these are terms that are used by the disciples themselves, Peter, John, in some cases, other disciples. Uh, this is the only place where non-disciples use the term. Uh, when Luke uses epistates, oftentimes Matthew and Mark will use curios, or they'll use uh, didaskalos, teacher, or they'll use rabbi. But Luke uses epistates as an interesting, uh, interesting expression. They're not disciples. He's not their hands-on master. And yet, do they want him to be? Are they hoping that someday he might be? In other words, do they aspire to become disciples? Which, of course, they can't because they're lepers. But calling him, um, you know, it would be like, uh, (laughs) you know, if there's a, uh, a sensei that you want to study under for your martial arts training and you go up and you call him by that title hoping that he will accept you as his trainee. See, maybe that's what's happening here. I, I kind of speculate a little bit that might be involved. Well, he's not going to touch them, interestingly enough. I mean, how many people that say, have mercy, heal me, help me, and Jesus does? Here he's not going to do it. Here he says, go to the priests. And that makes this another unique, that's another unique component of this miracle of this, uh, of this episode. So when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now again, back to Leviticus 13 and 14, the, the procedures for leprosy were to involve the priesthood for inspection. And the priesthood was involved not in a miraculous healing capacity, but in a, uh, declarative capacity. They had the final say. Uh, in, in order to look at a spot of white flesh or look at a, uh, 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 they, they were the dermatologists of their, <laughs> of their culture, all right? And uh, they didn't even pay $179 for a stupid cream, okay? They just, that's a different story, I'll, I won't even get out of fellowship there. They, um, they would observe and they would pronounce God's judgment, as to whether or not the, uh, the Jewish person involved was qualified to re-enter the Solemn Assembly. Okay? And it was all about ritual purity for participation in the Solemn Assembly, to observe the feasts, to take part in the festivals, to uh, participate in the national rituals as uh, prescribed for the Solemn Assembly. And so Jesus instructs the ten lepers to appear before the priests appear before the priests. They call on him for mercy and he says, go appear before the priests. And he doesn't say um, when you do, they will pronounce you clean, interestingly enough. But when they turn, when they leave, that's when their cleansing takes place. It does not take place until they obey his order. And as they're on their way to the priests, that's when the the miraculous healing takes place. Now, let's see. I've got fifteen minutes left. The there are long chapters in verses thirteen and Leviticus thirteen and fourteen. So, um, if I hit the brakes now and uh, go through that, then we aren't going to cover this today. So let's just assign that to you as homework. And and uh, I don't really want to get into skin blemishes today, so let's just skip that. How about that? But he instructs them. Here's what you got to do. He says, Go appear before the priests. And that was, uh, again, following Mosaic law. That's what was expected. A leper... When the infection had run its course, if he felt that it was diminished and that he was cleansed, then he could go and appear. And, And then, with the ruling of the priests, he could be readmitted to, he'd have to offer a sacrifice and do the cleansing ritual, but he would be offered, uh, permitted back into the solemn assembly to participate in the, uh, the activities there. Now, of course, one guy who could not is the Samaritan. You know, even if the priest looked at him and said, "Yep, all ten of you are completely free. You're all leprosy-free, clean bill of health, grade A, 100% cleansing, total remission," um, kind of a thing. Well, only nine of them would then be welcomed by the Jewish priesthood to enter into the solemn assembly and participate in the in the uh, the uh, the matters there. This Samaritan would be stuck out. Why? Because he's a Samaritan. He's not a part of the covenant nation, not a part of the the solemn assembly. And so, amazingly enough, of course, who is the one that shows the appreciation? Who is the one that worships God? Who is the one that offers the thanksgiving, That returns and and bows at Jesus' uh, feet? The last one you would have expected. And uh, I think it's a tremendous story with respect to salvation, with respect to some other patterns here. And that's what I want to spend our final minutes on uh, dealing with here. So he instructs the ten lepers to appear before the priests. And uh, notice it was the obedience. Obedience to Jesus' instructions that produced the healing benefits. Obedience to Jesus' instructions produced the healing benefit. I haven't used the word faith yet because I believe in this chapter it's incorrect to apply faith to the nine. I believe the nine Jewish lepers, we don't see belief applied to them in this, in this verse. We see it applied to the Samaritan individually as a singular, your, you, singular faith has saved you, singular So it's it's your, singular, faith, singular, has saved you, singular. Talking to the one guy, the Samaritan, not with reference to the nine. And I think that's significant. They were not saved as we understand it. They did not apply faith as we understand it, although they did obey. It's not called faith, it's called obedience. Now, obedience to Jesus' instructions produced a healing benefit. They said, have mercy on us. He says, go, and they go, and having gone then, they're healed. They're healed. See, does that bother you? You say, well, I kind of, he wouldn't heal unbelievers, would he? I mean, can't we assume that they get saved too? Well, you can assume whatever you like, but when you do, know what you're doing. (laughs) Know that you're assuming, okay? And understand that when you're assuming, you're going beyond the text. What does the text say? text never applies faith to the nine, only applies faith to the one. And unless you have some kind of a hang-up that doesn't allow Jesus to heal an unbeliever, then uh, you don't really have cause to try to insist that that's not the case. Um, You know, when he heals the nobleman's son, when he heals the synagogue official's daughter, when he he does a lot of healing, does he ask about their salvation before he heals them? He probably healed a lot of unbelievers, many of which hopefully got saved later on. Uh, Or, you know, in response. But it's obedience to the instructions that produce the benefit. Okay, Everybody in Egypt that obeyed the instructions, that killed the lamb, smeared the blood on the doorpost, ate the meal, and were dressed and in readiness, they got to walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. They benefited by obedience. Were they all regenerate with eternal life? Were they all saved? We don't know that. And we think a sizable number of them were not possessors of eternal life. They were actually idolaters bringing their idols with them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness. And um, yet they obeyed and there was a benefit for obeying. That's what I want to stress here today. Obedience to Jesus' instructions produced a benefit. Now, what's the benefit to not having leprosy? It's nice to not have leprosy, right? I mean, yeah, it's nice to, more than nice, of course, it's healthy, It's—it's it's, uh, you can conduct business, you can have a normal work life, you can have a normal family life, you can have a normal uh, reconciliation with your culture, with your society, you can go back to living inside the village instead of the little shanty town outside the village. There's a lot of benefits, but they're all earthly benefits. okay. In addition, of course, to being readmitted to the solemn assembly. There's a spiritual benefit, if you're spiritually minded. But in practical terms, it's, it's earthly benefits. You know, there's unbelievers that benefit by following God's, you know, obediently to God's instructions. There are unbelievers that have that benefit maritally. They're not saved. They're going to go to hell when they die. But before they go to hell and while they're still here, they are applying biblical principles within their marriage. And so they have integrity towards one another, and they don't cheat on one another, and they're they're fair to one another, and they, they they're following principles. Remember, marriage, family, the, the laws of divine establishment, nationalism. They weren't they're not spiritual laws given to Christians. They're establishment laws for temporal life living for the orderly function of the human race. And if an unbeliever uses those practices, can, can unbelievers raise respectful, obedient children? Sure. They can raise total monsters too, but then again, so can Christians. <laughs> okay? They can have good marriages, earthly speaking. They can have crummy marriages, earthly speaking. Christians can have crummy marriages, earthly speaking. Are they going to be obedient to the commands? So there's a obedience here, but don't confuse the obedience and the benefit, the fact that they got healed, with the spiritual reality that says they got saved, because this passage doesn't say they get saved. He tells the the one man, your faith has saved you. Now, nine lepers continue on, but one leper turned back. One leper turned back. And so far as we understand it, he never does make it to the priests. I think he understands the reality. I believe that he comes to a faith conviction that he doesn't have to go to the priests that once he made that step towards the priest, he had demonstrated the faith, the faith obedience. It's like when Abraham took the knife in his hand and started to thrust it down. He didn't have to finish the knife stroke. He didn't have to kill Isaac. In fact, God prevented him from killing Isaac. But he had to take that first step. He had to take up the knife. He had to make that motion until the Lord restrained his hand. And then test complete. Lesson learned. Father pleased. Christ glorified. And I believe here this leper figured it out. This Samaritan figured it out. This was his Abraham moment. And he took the step. He started walking towards a a temple and priest that wouldn't give him the time of day. But he took that step anyway because the Lord told him to. You know, if he'd have made it all the way to the priest as a leper, what would they have told him? You Samaritan, get out of here. What are you doing? Go to your Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. We don't have time for you. Okay. In fact, there's a notice posted on the gate that says, You can't come in here. We'll see that here shortly. So he takes that first step. He starts going. I don't think it was ten feet later when they were cleansed. But nine of them kept on going, even though they're healed, even though they the miracle's done. But they're going to go back to the temple. They're going to go to the priest. They're going to fulfill the ritual. And they they've missed the reality. Nine Jews, I believe they were all Jews, because it's only the one that's called a foreigner. Nine Jews were intent on Levitical procedures. Levitical procedures. No matter what, you've got to follow the procedure. Legalistic to the end. One Samaritan was saved by faith and gave glory to God. Notice that. In terms of glorification, none of them, only Him. One of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. Glorifying the Father, thanking the Son. He understood the issue. And he's the one that's praised for faith. Your faith has saved you. And it's interesting, Jesus calls him a foreigner. The term is alaganes, A-L-L-O, alas, meaning another, genes. Another race, another kind, um, another—you know—yeah, another race. Okay, it's not the normal term for Gentiles, but it's it's even a pejorative term because you don't belong. You belong somewhere else. This is not your place. You have another place. Alogenes is the only place in the New Testament Alogenes occurs. However, it's very well known from secular literature and it's famous. By its use on the walls of the temple. At every gate. At every gate this inscription was, was written Medena Elagone Ice Puruesti. Medena not even one, no zero, no foreigners may enter. Medena, elogone eis puruesti. Inscription on every temple. In fact, on the, uh, I started this for a reason, on the, um, I bookmarked it, diagram of the temple here, <coughs> assuming this works, Hello. okay, it's not going to work. I'm telling you. All right. Uh, But that was the inscription over the temple. At every gate, not just the the front gate, the side gates. The gates on the east, the gates on the south, the gates on the north. Every gate, no foreigners. No foreigners. Okay? The women could at least get past that step, and they were limited to the women's court on the outside. But uh, no foreigners coming into the temple. And here's the one who turns back with faith. The one who turns back with faith. All right, well, this is what we're dealing with. you know when I think about what God expects and I think about what um, what a picture of this is hmm are we confusing the healing with the salvation? Because all ten were healed. We're not told that you know because they kept going that somehow their leprosy came back. we never see them again. All ten were healed. And, you know, the nine of them went on their way and continued on in Judaism. And the one guy turned back, fell at Jesus' feet as a Samaritan, as an unworthy dog. And uh, he says to him, stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. I love that. love that a lot. All right. Well, that gets us through episode twenty-eight, twenty-nine. So we're in good ground today. I appreciate that. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. And, Father, I pray that, that uh, the impact from this message would uh, sink in for each one of us to appreciate the distinctions between uh, earthly benefits that may accrue due to obedience to principles and uh, true reality that takes place when believers walk by faith. Father, never let us confuse or blend spiritual life with establishment life. Never let us... Confuse uh, patriotism and political involvement with the Christian way of life or anything remotely spiritual or eternally rewardable. Father, never let us confuse our uh, responsibility in uh, ambassadorial function as salt and light with our priestly function for your eternal worship. Father, thank you that the Word of God gives us such distinctions. Thank you that we can rightly divide and we can keep clear in our thinking. Please, Father, don't allow us this to get muddled so that our thinking becomes unclear, so that we get sidetracked into causes and crusades and marches and and non-issues that are going to penalize us at the judgment seat of Christ and uh, cause us to have a diminished capacity to glorify the one who is worthy of so much more. Father, I thank you for these lessons. I thank you for these principles. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.